A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture in film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And today, I'm joined by film curator and historian, Alicia Fletcher, and writer, librarian, and Nicolas Cage expert, Lindsay Gibb. Terrible things happen in the muggy heat of the South. It's an atmosphere so wrought with tension that you wait for it to break like the heat. And that's what Southern Gothic is all about. Now, today, we're looking at two movies with taut love triangles that happen in the South. Well, one the actual South and one Southern California. But the Southern Gothic feel of mystery, sex, and tension seeps into both movies. Now, Alicia, you wanted to talk about Southern Gothic. That's one of the reasons we picked these movies. What is it for you that really speaks to the the Southern Gothic feel in these movies and why we love it in film so much? It's very sexy, mostly because it's sweaty, but it also feels somehow wrong and out of step with time, which really appeals to me. So, I mean, I, I know I love gothic films, but then you add a bayou or you add this sort of Americanization of, of the European gothic and it gets wild. And I feel like there's a lot of ability to sort of um, be overly exaggerated theatrical. I mean, just think about the accents. Just think about the extremes of the climate for these Southern Gothic films. Um, the fact that there's, you know, and this will come up as Italy, crocodiles are a regular, you know, threat to your livelihood and your life. It's so extreme that I think adding the very emotional peaks of the traditional Gothic, as you know, the 19th century had it, and then putting that into the American South, whether that's Southern California or Louisiana, it just allows for extreme filmmaking and extreme performances and extreme um, extremism in your story. And I think that is something that really appeals to me. How about you, Lindsay? Are you much for the Southern Gothic? Does this work for you? Um, I don't think I had watched a whole lot of Southern Gothic before. I think like Eve's Bayou is kind of like my oh, biggest so one that I'm good. like super into. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I agree with what Alicia said. Like, I think it makes a lot of room for like moody stories and, and yeah, like extreme acting. <laughs> There's a lot of ones too that people don't realize fit into the Southern Gothic trope. Like, for example, Streetcar Named Desire, very mm -hmm. easily considered to be uh, Southern Gothic. Most Tennessee Williams, any sort of like foppish, uh, you know, bachelor uncles fawning around and women looking for lost loves. And I mean, it's very easily contrastable with your Heathcliff and Kathy stories. Like, that's exactly what he's doing. Instead of Moors, you got a bayou. Yeah. And, you know, very easy for bodies to disappear in both a bayou and a moor. Just yeah, I mean, Hitchcock at times kind of went Southern Gothic. It's rare, but that's sort of, I think, for me, the transition point between the British and European Gothic to American Gothic was Hitchcock working with Psycho and working with a variety of other films. Rebecca, certainly, which will come up a lot, I think, with Dead Again. It's so fascinating as a genre, and it doesn't get looked at very often. Like, there's no textbook, as far as I know, on here's all your Southern Gothic films. A lot of them are, unsurprisingly, literary adaptations. So think about something like The Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which I recommend mm. everyone go see. It's fantastic. And that's a film that, you know, in the 90s was working with a really famous drag queen and just was really ahead of its time in casting Jude Law as the baddie. Um, well, and Lady Shebley as yeah, herself, right? Yeah. Like, thank what a brilliant stroke of casting of why don't we just have the Lady Shebley play yeah. herself? Yes, correct. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I just, you know, I love a film that is peppered with mint juleps and bad mustaches. And if we're going to talk about bad mustaches, oh, wow, Zandalee. Like, you don't have one of them. You have two. 
All right. Well, let's get into it right away because I know my two Nicolas Cage experts here are just itching (laughs) to do this. So here we go. So in 1991, Nicolas Cage was on a path to become one of our most celebrated actors with appearances in critical darlings like Moonstruck and Wild at Heart. But despite the prestigious path he was on, Cage got a cage and the wild, unhinged performances got to come through in the muggy heat of the bayou. Now, perhaps there is no one who loves the trappings of the South quite like Cage. He's made his home there. He set his directorial debut, Sunny There. And anytime he can do a Southern accent and grow his hair out, have weird facial hair, and wear a tank top, he is in. Now, Lindsay, is this movie succulent like a duck? Um, <laughs> I had to rewatch the film. Everyone goes for the shake you naked. Everyone goes for the shake you naked line. Yeah. I'm like, this is succulent duck is way creepier to me. Um, this is not one of my favorite cage movies, I will say. <laughs> um, and probably in the like realm of erotica and southern gothic it's not one of my favorites either um so i guess that's a no to second like a duck it is certainly i would say it is watchable but it is very much a large group of people everybody knowing exactly what they're going into we're going to talk about the screening alicia hosted with her partner a while uh, a little while ago uh lindsay just so people know what they're in for do you want to give us a brief plot summary on this one sure so it's a film with uh nicholas cage as kind of i guess he's Sort of the main character, though, really, he's kind of a side character, uh, Johnny Collins. But the main characters are Zandali or Zondali, depending on who's saying it. Yeah, it's, it, it gets mispronounced <laughs> throughout the entire film. It's amazing. So that's played by Erica Anderson. And so she's married to Judge Reinhold's Thierry. How do, how do, how it should be, it should be a Thierry, but they say it in this right. Bayou way it's, that I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. Their marriage is kind of in flux, I guess, because he's become kind of a corporate guy uh, in the wake of his father's death. And he was a poet. And she seems to have been like attracted to him as an artist. And then comes along Nicolas Cage, who's a painter. She doesn't seem at all attracted to him, but somehow falls into a love affair with him that is very uh, awful. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely think it's important for Cage's character to um, contextualize that he's a recently released prisoner. Like he's been in jail, which this is coming off of Wild at Heart and thinking about raising Arizona. This is a real trope for Cage, the the jailbird who's been recently released. He is a vending re- vending machine repairman by day, uh, abstract painter by night. Like it's just right. such a like knowing what we know about Cage, like you you see him looking at that character description and going, yes, yes. And this shoots in Louisiana. I'm on board. Like it's such a ridiculous character. Like just. Well, let's talk about where in the Cage cinematic universe we are. So, Lindsay, where are we sitting? Yeah. So we're about a decade into his career at this point. Um, so it comes after Moonstruck, where he sort of solidified himself as a potential love interest in a film. Um, but after, also after Vampire's Kiss, where he shows his majorly experimental side and shows that he's interested in more than his own rising star or building a career. So, and I honestly think Vampire's Kiss is the template for understanding Cage's work and his choices. You'll see a lot of Vampire's Kiss Cage in his future roles. Maybe not the full intensity of that character, but, you know, the precise line delivery that we see in Zandali as well. Um, the extremes of eating the raw cockroach, things totally, like this. The enthusiasm yeah. and his mannerisms and things that come into his films. 
what we're right at the same period as Alicia said, where he films Wild at Heart, Firebirds, and then Zandali in quick succession. So Wild at Heart wasn't out yet when this film was made, but they have an interesting connection, I guess, in that Cage is playing a sexed up character that there's an eroticism to both films and to his characters in a way that he hadn't done in his previous work. Um, and that probably speaks both to the timing of the films, which I'm sure we're going to get into about like erotica in the 80s and 90s, but also to the fact that Cage was likely on the lookout for characters unlike any he'd played before. And he saw something in Sailor Ripley and Wild at Heart and Johnny Collins and Zandali that he could have fun with, I guess. Um, and this also comes right before his Sunshine trilogy, which is Honeymoon in Vegas, Guarding Tess, and It Could Happen to You, and well before his Action trilogy. That's so funny. That I, The way that you're able to just like compartmentalize into phases is so funny. Um, my personal theory about Nicolas Cage is that uh, he must be aimed like a missile. He cannot be steered. And, yes. <laughs> and, and as a direct result, you need to have a very strong authority, which is why uh, Moonstruck is so good, because both the director and Cher are bar- both like, okay, nope, you're with me. You're with me. Yes, you can have the weird teeth, but that's it. Right. You know? Whereas opposed to something like Peggy Sue Got Married— they just kind of let him go in a direction and unfortunately I think taints the movie. Like it's such an interesting movie, but he just takes it in such a bizarre direction. Um, This is a movie that obviously got away from everybody. And I think everybody admits this film is not a success, but not a success in a very watchable way. Where does this movie just totally go off the rails? Is it at the initial stages that the script just doesn't work? What do you guys think? It definitely goes off the rails in the scene where Nicolas Cage, after Zondali has left him, paints himself black with his, like, like fully, <laughs> like, think about Arrested Development and Blue Man and Tobias. Like, picture that, but Nicolas Cage in black paint while wearing these this tiny pair of underwear. I recently found the... Um, screen like the screenshot tests like the photographs that they tested how the black paint would look and I have a feeling I have, I've talked to Sam Pillsbury the director of Zandali several times and I haven't asked this question but I should have in advance of this I feel like that was Nicolas Cage's idea to paint himself head to toe in black and yell feel like that's this film at its most extreme I don't know how you could make this film technically work. I want to say that I love this film. I think it works on a certain level. 30 years later, watching it retrospectively, I think it works. It never got a theatrical release, really, in North America. I believe it was released in France um, in theaters. But it was a straight-to-video by the end of this. this. This was a film that was designed to be a tax scheme, almost like a Ponzi scheme. Uh. The producers tanked it before he was even done filming so they could recoup insurance money, which is why it didn't get released theatrically. Pillsbury had to convince actors and crew to work for a few days for free just to even finish the film uh, and then kind of just allow it to be released in this slow drizzle. Um, And it was on TV a lot, which in Canada, I I think this was definitely on the Drambui Showcase Review, like as one of the— I was just thinking, I'm like, this was Drambui, wasn't it? Yep. (laughs) Yeah, this was like a headliner for that. How, I mean, this has such a bad production history, so how could it work? I think I think it's actually Judge Reinholdt's fault. And I know that that's like easy to blame him, but I do think Cage is delivering here exactly what he was asked to do. It's just out of the gate, he's so 
obscene that maybe if that had been dialed back in the beginning and he sort of woos Zondali and his best friend as being not a threat, then we could watch this the slow corruption of this woman who is sexually frustrated because her partner is impotent. Like, then it makes sense. Instead, they just went right out of the gate, full bayou, great soundtrack. Oh, my God. Wonderful score. Uh, and it's just it's just wild. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, I think that's, like, in interviews with Sam Pillsbury, he says that he figured out many years later how he could have made this work and that it was to make Cage more likable in the beginning and make her, like, fall for him. And then it yeah. made kind of sense. Um, but that's, like... I think that when people critique this film, they say, like, that Cage didn't do the right thing for that, but, like, that she's acting that way. And I don't think she is. I think right from the start, she acts like she hates this guy. agreed. And so I think that what he's doing is right for the way the the film was made. So if he was going to do that approach, then the whole thing would have had to be somewhat different. Yeah. Um, And I think that she... It seems like the reason that she goes for him is just because she's so upset in her marriage and that's her option out. Like, not because she likes this guy at all. And that's kind of the story. But I don't know. It falls flat for me because I think you're right. It's a Judge Reinhold problem. (laughs) He was apparently a huge asshole on set and would only behave himself in front of Cage. Cage is Mm. the consummate professional. Like, there's such a mis. Um, conception that he is like unhinged on set like his performances are but he takes every role and has very very seriously and prepares for them and isn't you know even I think currently he always talks about how he like doesn't drink wine when he's filming like he it's just so and he was like that Sam talks about how professional he was even though he was like really deep into this crazy character whereas Reinhold was a little you know pedantic temper tantrum that's unfortunate to hear. Yeah, it doesn't sound like anyone had a particularly good time on this shoot. Like, uh, even Erica Anderson talks about how Cage got a little too into some of the romance scenes and it got a little violent sometimes. And it's, and again, that is a good director stepping in and going, hey, we need that. I mean, that's why we have intimacy coordinators now and obviously not as common in the early 90s. But I mean, that's a director stopping in and being like, oh, okay, this is not safe. We're going to stop this right now. No, right? no directors of erotic thrillers did that. I can't think of a single example of a director in this genre who cares about The only person I think I've heard good stories about who was doing any sort of erotic scenes is Cronenberg. Everybody talks about how Cronenberg is actually really good to do sex scenes with, which is just like, okay. I mean, the man understands human bodies and the terrible things that can happen to them. So there's that. Yeah, that's a fair point. Well, let's get into the erotica boom at all, because this movie is intending to be erotic by which it has sex (laughs) and it has sex in many places in many different positions um and there was such a call in the 90s for this now of course we know karina longworth is currently doing a uh, whole series on 90s erotica including the television boom with shows like red shoe diary um there was one called uh silk stockings s-t-a-l-k which is just Mm -hmm. bonkers um, and a lot of them are Canadian, which a lot of people don't realize. A lot of that's all filmed in Canada. What was happening at this point that we we want this kind of erotica, especially with, um, the, you know, the internet coming up and porn being so accessible? I don't even know where to begin. Lin- Lindsay, you take this. <laughs> oh, no. 
<clears throat> I mean, I think it was already happening in the 80s. So, but like, yeah, why? I think it, like the rating systems, yeah. it seems like were an effect on this, like the change from X to NC-17. Which this was the second sort of... film to get an NC-17 rating. So it was very fresh off NC-17, which means you could show it in a theater and you could show it on television, but under certain parameters. So that changed everything from the 80s. Yeah, and I guess directors were just finding... That uh, taking up that challenge, <laughs> seeing if they <laughs> could lure in ob- audiences, and I'm sure that you know the success of things like Fatal Attraction and different films uh, that came before this that led to a boom. The influence to uh, even on this one of nine and a half weeks, and we're going to be talking yeah. this season yeah. as well about Hot Shots, and Hot Shots has an entire like <laughs> comedy scene based entirely on nine and a half. I weeks, think so. I think a oh, lot boy. of with Zandali in particular is it. It is on it is on the shoulders of Sam Pillsbury, who is not American, just for some background. He's from New Zealand. Um, really interesting filmmaker. For some of our listeners, they might be familiar with the New Zealand like quintessential apocalypse film, The Quiet Earth, which Pillsbury produced and wrote and was a huge success for him and kind of was his calling card to come to Hollywood. Um, that calling card was ripped up right after Santali, and he was not admitted to any other Hollywood productions. But um, he was looking at European films. Like, when we talk about the erotic thrillers of the 80s and 90s, we're talking about North American film. Um, in Europe, this was not a big deal. They'd been doing this for decades. And I think when he's looking at the way he shoots these sex scenes, which um, are full frontal, and, like, full frontal in that you're not dividing up women's body parts. Like, you're seeing Eric Anderson's full body having sex, not one leg, then the other breast. Then the, like, it's very European. It's very French. And I think that that, you know, was shocking for the censors um, in 1990, 1991. It's an interesting um, uh, performance by uh, Eric Anderson, who we haven't really talked uh, talked a lot about. And every now and then you watch a performance where you're like, this is a person who is very good because I think she is genuinely unsure what the hell is going on around her at all times. And I, I think that actually works for her and, and works for this this thing. Um, it's She doesn't seem to have a huge career outside of them. I mean, of course, she started out as a model. Um, she's in uh, The Dream Child, uh, uh, The Nightmare on Elm Street 5, um, which is one of the weirdest installments of that series, if anyone is familiar mm-hmm. with it, of say of, a, of something that is full of incredibly weird things. You know what she would have been well known for, though, is and this is like imitation to love, which is the fake yes. soap opera in Twin Peaks, which you see kind of throughout. I think both seasons. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but she yeah. is one of the lead characters on this fake soap opera that was filmed at the very famous Frank Lloyd Wright House in Los Angeles. I think, and that's an ABC show airing from 89 to 91, like people actually would have known who she was when this film came out because of how big Twin Peaks was. Oh, she was also up there. She was a supermodel. Like she was yeah, do, like yeah. just kind of missing like the golden age of supermodels with your Cindy Crawfords and your, your Naomi Campbells. Like she just kind of missed that era. But she was up there. Like she would have been recognizable uh, for sure. Um, I'm sure people had posters of her on on their walls in various ways. Um, so she, I think her name would have been a draw for this. It's like, oh, I get to see her naked. Let's go. Like Mr. Skin before Mr. Skin. Right? And I think for Zandalee, correct me if I'm wrong, it's introducing Erica Anderson because it would have been her first like big starring 
leading role. Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose. I mean, she she has a lot to do in Dream Child. I rewatched it being like, I remember this being real weird. It's real weird. She gets fed to death. It's a whole thing. It's like the prosthetics are wild. Hmm. Um, that movie, well, terrible script, amazing practical effects, uh, as you can say for many of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. But I, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Lindsay? Are you, are you, do you believe that performance? Like, I, I think everyone here is doing their best acting wise, with the exception of Judge Reinhold. Yeah, I agree. I think that she's surprising i guess for somebody who hasn't done a lot of other things and um when you know it's a film that has problems with it you almost expect the problems to potentially be with her but that's not really where they land um i think that she's believable but she's also kind of like hmm, she's like in a trance throughout the whole thing so i think that maybe for someone who wasn't as experienced as an actor she could just kind of like drift yeah, drift through the movie, <laughs> but also like potentially the creepy look of Nicolas Cage helped her as an actress, like to react to him in real time. Like this guy is the worst. <laughs> and so she's constantly just giving him these creepy looks. I mean, um, he comes out of the gate. Like, it's weird. This is written by a woman, we should say, which is also a yes. very weird thing. And she's basing it on a very classic, classic play from, like, the 1700s. And it's, which often make excellent adaptations. Um, I mean, we've looked at something like Clueless before or, you know, which you've got Emma. It's It, it just makes sense to adapt these things to modern sensibility. And they always have something juicy in them. Um but there's just something like, like we talked about earlier about this guy roaring out of the gate being so deeply unattractive and unpleasant. And he's physically unattractive. Like the facial hair is gross. His hair is greasy. We have seen a very jacked Nicolas Cage. And this is not a jacked Nicolas Cage. What do you guys think? Like, is this, it, it, why is he so unattractive? I think it was his choice. I yeah, he showed up off the plane with those extensions. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Didn't. And the and the facial hair. And I think that the filmmakers were uh, not happy <laughs> with how he looked. I think this is kind of like a Peggy Sue Got Married situation again, where he came with like a fully formed idea of what his character should be. He felt like this is what he should look like to. And, and in some ways it was effective because it made the characters react to him in the way that they needed to. You know, as much as Wild at Heart wasn't out yet, I think that they, the filmmakers would have preferred him to have like more of a Wild at Heart look to him than, than how he showed up. I still find him sexy. Am I crazy? Like, is that, <laughs> I should, yeah, probably. Yeah, man. You've there's, got this giant blind spot, though, Alicia, when it comes to sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. I think there's a moment on the street. I had this as like my profile picture on Facebook for a while where he's wearing those big mm -hmm. orange glasses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And his hair is less black. It's somehow like more brown, I guess, out in the sunlight. <laughs> and he just, I think he looks cute. But I think they're really bad extensions. I think the extensions didn't age well as they were they filming. Like and off. so almost like that scene you're talking about where he's doing road work, um, it almost looks like his natural hairline. And then he's just brushed it back. I almost wonder if the extensions, if that was a reshoot or, you know, early in the extensions lives. Um, and then the extensions got thinner and thinner and weaker and weaker as the film went on. When he was in the bayou, you can really tell, like, uh, I was watching it with someone who was like, the wig, and I was like, I don't think it's a wig. No. You can tell it's not a wig because there's, like, a big bald spot. Yeah, and it almost looks like so, um, yeah. a series of rat tails instead of, like, a, like hair. Yeah. Like, it's like they've all dreaded, and so it's... Um, 
I love that sequence on the boat, though, with the the, tri- the love triangle. Uh, and we don't want to spoil how this film ends. It ends <laughs> hilariously. It's really a jump in the shark kind of situation. But, uh, you know, that sequence, which is high stakes, is pretty fantastic to me. And they, there's a great dance sequence between Cage and uh, Reinhold, like a slow dance sequence it is just wild 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 i feel like that dance sequence also hammers home maybe why cage chose that look Mm. like it's he's dressed in all dark colors judge reinhold's dressed in all white colors it's like he's meant to be the devil and i almost feel like maybe the facial hair just came from the time period but i feel like potentially cage thought like if i look like the devil when i come then that's like the devil luring her away from her i almost wonder if he'd been watching angel heart because there's some real Mm, that's a mickey rourke um robert de niro uh, lisa benet really tough film to watch but people love it um it is true southern gothic and leans more into horror but that's robert de niro is the devil and it's almost the same facial hair and the same kind of physical performance 87 so that's that's prime. So yeah, totally. That's prime for Cage to be looking at these Bayou films and saying, oh, I'm just going to do what De Niro did. I'm going to do The Devil. Yeah, I can totally see that. Well, that having been said, Lindsay, what do we have that we know that Nicolas Cage, like, what is it that he loves about the South? He's not Southern, is he? No. Like, he's from California. He's from Beverly Hills. Yeah, like Beverly Hills. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that he necessarily, like, that love for the South had come out until, like, this mm-hmm. this period kind of, like, brought it out in him, I think. Like, this is where he gets, maybe not Zondali, but, like. Soon after, uh, though. Well, the heart. Yeah, and it sort of leads to his love for that. So. Well, I think because he bought—I'm trying to think what year yeah. he bought the Lallerie Mansion in the French Quarter, which is, like, considered the most haunted place in North right. America. It's where, um, you know, American Horror Story did a whole season on her as a serial killer. Um, he loses that in a foreclosure, but—so, I mean, Wild at Heart comes out in 90. This comes out in 91. Lindsay, is it the case where he filmed this first? I thought he filmed Wild at Heart first. He filmed Wild at Heart first. Yeah, so I think that's got to be. And it goes through New Orleans. So, like, he'd already been there. I feel like these two films sort of led to his love for the area. Yeah, and then, you know, he goes full Southern for Con Air, and that's where I think he starts buying the New Orleans real estate, because it wasn't just the LaLaurie mansion. He was, you know, buying blocks, I think, of New Orleans. Later, LaLaurie is 2007. So that's when he is actually on his financial high because Mm. that's when he's doing National Treasure and all that, right? Um, And he says he bought it because he thought it would be a good place to write the great American horror novel. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. (laughs) His intentions, though, are a little off, I think. Um, Yeah, like he bought that. I can't remember the figure. He bought that for millions and millions and sold it for like 30% of what he bought it for just because he owed so much in taxes. We shouldn't talk about that, though. But um, (laughs) yeah, it's wild. He works really well, though, as a Southern Gothic gent. Like there's something very Tennessee Williams about him from the very beginning, whether that's Moonstruck or Raising Arizona or... Uh, you know, even Cotton Club and uh, Rumblefish, which are smaller roles, like this seems to be something he had early in his career and then it reaches its crescendo with Zandali. Now, the final point that I just kind of want to bring up is that Nathan Rabin, who is a, uh, a, a entertainment writer, who's a lot of his work I enjoy very much, um, he compares this to a star-studded The Room. Mm. And I don't know if that's entirely fair. I think he's talking more about it feels like 
one man's ego sort of driving this weird sexual escapade that comes off creepy and weird when that's not what it's intended to be. But I don't think that's true. What do you guys think? This is too well made to be the room because the cinematography yeah. is quite beautiful. There's an original score on this film of, you know, I, I, I can't remember who it is. It's a really famous um, jazz musician who appears in the film. Um, that is a real that is a real benefit to this film. Um, the room is made by a sociopath who doesn't understand filmmaking. That is not Sam Pillsbury. And that is yeah. none of these actors are phoning in a performance like The Room. I will say, having done it theatrically recently for, I guess, the first time in Canada, and we played it off of a director's cut laser disc because that is all that is available. If anyone <laughs> listening to this knows where there's a 35 millimeter print of Zandali, I will buy it. Like, I mean that because I've been searching for this for years might not exist because it didn't really show up in theaters. Um, you know, it there were there was a lot of laughter in the theater. How could there not be? Um, it was really fun watching this with 120 people um, on a I think a Wednesday night, um, and it was treated like I wouldn't say it was treated as a joke. It was, it was very respectful. I was very concerned about some of the scenes of what I would say are sexual assault, um, and no one laughed through those. Like they. The audience took this seriously with a grain of salt. And that's not what the room is. The room is you get, you know, hella drunk and show up to a theater and it doesn't, you just watch it with your brain turned off. I don't think Zandley is that. I think Zandley will have a resurgence in the next few years. Um, definitely everyone we talked to, who very few people had seen it when we polled the audience, they they appreciated it. And I think the thing is, is watching it with an audience in a movie theater with proper sound and a good picture changes this film. Because everyone who's seen it has probably watched it on YouTube or Tubi and in a version that is not the director's cut that was censored. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't think, I, I don't agree with that critic at all. This is not the room. I would I would definitely use that in a film note to sell it and make sure people come to the screening, but then I would trick them <laughs> and be on stage and be like, this isn't the room, you fools. Um <laughs> Now you're all here. Bar the doors. Fire <laughs> yes. rules be damned. That's how I program. <laughs> I have also seen Zandali in the theater um, in Scotland. Scotland. Uh, they have, there was a film festival called Cagerama that took place for about three years, ending in t early 2020. They always did it on his birthday weekend. So January. it was in January. Um, so I went <laughs> to the last one because I, I did talks for them for the first two, but like I was on the screen or whatever. Yeah. I recorded them. So then I went to the last one to actually like do a little interview. Because no one knows who has the rights for this film. There is no way to legally book it. I'm being very honest. We, with the permission of the director, and, you know, it was a break even kind of screening. We weren't going to bank a lot of money on this. Um you know, the, the Laserdisc alone on eBay cost me, I think, more than what we made in ticket sales. But uh you know, there's no no one, this is a lost film in some ways. No one knows how to restore it. There's got to be some element somewhere because it does exist on DVD. But it's also in the wrong aspect ratio. So I'm just like, he shot this on film. He doesn't know where the negative is. It went with the producers who used this as a Ponzi scheme. So it's it's a real, it hasn't had its day. It's starting to get there. Like if this is showing in New York at the Roxy, it's showing at the Review in Toronto and Scotland, like you're saying, Lindsay, it's going to happen. All right. Well, it's time to move on to our next movie. And we should come from the heat of the bayou to the smog of Los Angeles. It's dead again. And that's coming up after the break. 
Hey, Cam, uh, caveat before we start. Uh, I appear in some Hollywood Suite original content, and you are one of the writers and producers of a lot of that content, and you appear in them as well. Uh, shows like A to Z and the Year in Film TV series, but I'm really proud of being a part of them because I feel that, like this podcast, uh, knowing more about the context of the movies we love really enriches the enjoyment of those movies. I think it's also a, a great reminder that like film is such an unusual medium where so many artists are involved. I think you're somebody who loves to dig into producers uh, and like how they affect things. You know, a producer was obsessed with an actor and that's why they're in X or Y. How one director made a pillow fort to get away from his producer when he was throwing tantrums. Sure. Uh, John Peters really wanted to see a giant mechanical spider on screen. These are all like important points <laughs> of film history that, uh, that get lost because frankly, they're not the front facing people. Exactly. And I think all of the Hollywood Suite original content brings these stories that a lot of people haven't heard before to the forefront. And not only are they going to learn about the movies they already love, they'll probably find a bunch of new favorites. And they'll be guided by reliable film experts and thorough, well-curated interviews and behind-the-scenes footage. And you can find out more about Hollywood Suite original programming at hollywoodsuite.ca. And now, back to the show. Picture this. You're 29 years old. You're the darling of Stratford and the Royal Shakespeare Company. Critics call you the second coming of Laurence Olivier. Your directorial debut, an adaptation of Henry V, wins you universal acclaim and Oscar nominations for Best Actor and Best Director. Oh, and you're married to Emma Thompson. Where do you possibly go from there? Well, if you're Ken Branagh, or K-Dog, as he's lovingly known on this podcast, you dip your toe into a 40s gothic-tinged thriller, a follow-up no one could have predicted. Or, because you're K-Dog and you do nothing by halves, you hurdle yourself headfirst into the genre, complete with Southern California settings and the accompanying accent. Dead again. Should this come back for a second life? Alicia, what do you think? I'm always impressed by this film. I mean, it's wild. Um... It's a huge turn for Kenneth Branagh to go from Henry V, and he really had, you know, carte blanche for whatever historical epic he wanted to direct second, and then he chose this. Um, it is, you know, it is really the epitome of the neo-noir, even more so than what we think of as neo-noir, because it's actually imbuing a 1940s noir story into present time, and it does that by having these flashback sequences in black and white. So the story is about uh, the murder of Margaret Strauss, which occurs in 1948. She's a concert pianist, and she's thought to be murdered by her husband for jealousy, who is played by Kenneth Branagh. Uh, Margaret Strauss is, of course, played by Emma Thompson. And then we flash forward to the future, 1991, we have an American Kenneth Branagh who is like a private investigator, and he's charged with finding out the identity of this woman who has shown up at a like an orphanage or a nunnery um, with total amnesia, except she's hugely traumatized. And that's our modern-day Emma Thompson. We don't know her name for a while. She's kind of called Grace at some point. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and through hypnosis, we discover this background that she is, you know, potentially the reincarnation of a woman who was murdered and her husband was um, electrocuted, uh, executed. And then it's up to Kenneth Brown's character and her to kind of figure it out because it maybe he murdered her, maybe he didn't. Uh, I don't want to give anything away because I think maybe listeners should watch this if they haven't seen it so we can kind of leave the ending out. Um, but I think it's really effective and he kind of, it's surprising from K-Dog because he takes himself so seriously. But I think in this film, he's able to really understand the the tawdriness of 1940s 
crime and and crime films and murder movies and mysteries and you know even thinking around like the black dahlia and stuff like that like that kind of sensationalism the credit sequences is phenomenal it's like really hammers home like this is going to be the 90s channeling the 40s and you know dashiell hammett and various noir authors uh and it's it's a fun romp um and it's scary at parts it's very gothic where it's Southern California, it's clearly LA, but it's it has that Southern Gothicness. Um, and I'm always like I, I grew up watching this, and I revisited it, thinking, "Oh, this is going to be so terrible." And I was really wooed by it. And watching it the second time for this podcast, I'm I think his technique, his his filmmaking technique, is in, impeachable. Um, and I say that. At, it's K Dog, but he's like really. This is right before like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, if he had just calmed himself down from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and used some of the things he learned on set of this film, it might have been a little less schlocky. I don't know it works. What do you think, Lindsay? What, had you seen this before? Yeah, so I'd certainly seen it in the 90s and then I'd kind of forgotten about it. And then uh, actually in February of this year, my husband and I were like talking about it hmm. just randomly and then we found it and rented it. And then when you guys invited me to this. I was like, weird. I just watched this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like this is a movie um, a lot that's coming back into the conversation now for a lot of reasons. We're going to talk about this is a favorite of Jordan Peele. And if you've seen oh, Us really? and you know The Scissors, this oh, he directly shit. references this film is Us uh, being a huge influence on Us. So it's coming cool. back into the conversation is very influential. Yeah, we're, we're going to have it on Hollywood Suite. Um, and, you know, this is this is really our bread and butter of 1990s movie programming. I would really recommend people who have Hollywood Suite to check this one out. Um, and we've had it. And if you years. don't have Hollywood Suite yet, you can subscribe <laughs> at hollywoodsuite.ca. <laughs> and through Amazon Prime. Um, this will be, right. yeah, it's so well made. Like it's, um, it is fascinating and it, it looks really good. He's really looking at how I think Robert Altman has shot L.A. and how, you know, the best of the noir directors shot um, L.A., whether that was the studio or not. And um, you know, making LA a character, it's it's kind of its own character. It's not Hollywood. It's very like this is like the darkest of Los Angeles in the early. You 90s. also have to keep in mind he isn't from Los Angeles. No. He's not a nepo baby. He is from the UK and from Belfast as much as you can possibly be. And so what you're really getting is almost like a fanboy version of what Los Angeles should be. I mean, that you hear about him talk about this. Yeah, you hear about him talk about it in, in um, contemporaneous interviews. And he's like, I got to shoot on the soundstage that Orson Welles shot Citizen mm, Kane. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hanging out with. Um, Sam Goldwyn Jr. and he was like showing me his collection of memorabilia and he's the one who told me to stop doing plays if I wanted to own a Monet. And it's it, he's just he's very much fanboying out about this stuff and his it's it really is his attempt to make Hitchcock. Um totally. do do we think that succeeded? Like you can see the techniques there. I think he uses a lot of different techniques. So maybe it doesn't totally succeed in being like strictly Hitchcock but like like you said like you can see some Orson Welles throughout this like particularly some of the black and white kind of sequences of the film some of the shots in that um yeah I feel like this is a very like a film where you can see its influences and you can see that it's like an er, someone in their early kind of like directorial period of their career who's like using a lot of influences to make a film 
He also says he's trying to get away from the Olivier references. Like, as we mentioned, this is a mm. weird selection of someone who was coming off being nominated for multiple Oscars for a Shakespeare adaptation. He was known for his uh, being able to update Shakespeare for modern audiences, like Much Ado About Nothing. And if you want to see a bizarre Keanu Reeves performance, please go watch Much Ado About Nothing. It's a lot of fun. Um, but he is, this is like a very, very odd selection for him. But he says that he was trying to get away from the Laurence Olivier comparison because he's like, I didn't want to have that hanging over my shoulder. So he says for his character, he was trying to go more David Niven when he's playing Roman and like really go to like find this European uh, sophisticated sexuality in that. I'm going to call bullshit on that because, you know, oh, I I don't want to be, I don't want to be yoked with Sir Lawrence Olivier for my whole career. So I'm going to make a film that is basically a remake of Rebecca, which is a film that stars Lawrence Olivier. Like, I think that is a very retroactive thing he's talked about for this film. I think he was very happy to be compared to Lawrence Olivier. And Lawrence Olivier was in a variety, I guess he was known for Shakespeare, and those are the films he directed. But he was known for a variety of genres and films. And I think it's um, ludicrous that he's saying he made this to distance himself from the ghost of Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> K-Dog, I mean, just get real. That would be my... Well, the other thing a lot of critics talk about is that this is a wild swing. Like, yeah. Ebert specifically is like, this is like... Ebert talks about how he's not totally sure it works, but he is like, this is someone coming out. It, it feels like a sophomore effort of like, you knocked it out in the park in your first one. So the second one, you're now allowed to experiment a little bit. You're allowed to take this big swing and figure out what you are. I mean, he's 29. Like, that's bonkers. He looks 45 in this movie. That <laughs> he does look 45. <laughs> Um, yeah. But, I mean, he's getting to work with his wife, He, who is, like, one of our greatest actors. Who he will eventually cheat on and leave. With Helena Bonham yeah. Carter, who we all know is a freak, you know? Like, and I mean that in the best possible way. Um, and I, I, I just feel like it, this is, like, it's such a huge, wild, brave swing. But then after—and obviously we'd see that again in Frankenstein, which is utterly bonkers. Please go listen to our episode on that if you want to hear more about it, because it is wild. And then he becomes this—after all this wildness, he disappears for a bit, and then he becomes this very, by the book, you can trust him with your budget— director doing like like the first Thor is deeply boring and then he does like the the by the numbers Cinderella for Disney and like even Belfast really isn't taking huge swings it's again very like by the numbers and so I'm like did you get your wrist slip slapped so hard that you felt this was really the only way you could work in the Hollywood system what do you guys think no I think this was successful critics liked this movie it did well at the box office I don't think he got any wrist slapping I think he's very methodical and thinks about legacy a lot. Like, I think he's someone who's coming into his career in his 20s, thinking about, okay, how do I become as famous and lauded as Laurence Olivier? And then he just looks at, like, someone else's filmography. He's like, okay, I've got to make one of these and one of these and one of these, and then I switch to this. Then I do one of these. Then I'm a Russian baddie and tenant, and that will get the cool kids to like me. (laughs) And it's just, just, that's always what I've thought of his career. It's an incredibly successful career. I mean, it's funny because there's a lot of references to Agatha Christie, in this movie, and then he will go on several decades later to start making, you know, the Murder on the Orient Express and have huge, huge, huge box office with that. He just bores me so much. And I think for me, this is like such a change in that for me. Like, I really appreciate how wild this film is. I actually do appreciate how wild Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is. Where I get bored is just with how, in the last 20 years, he takes zero risks. 
Um, he makes Belfast and writes that screenplay to be the most Oscar-formulaic film possible. Uh, yeah, and I just wish we had more K-Dog a la 1991's Dead Again, because um, he's so talented, but he's just so conscious of himself, and that always is very clear to me in a director. I think, too, as like a director who's directing himself <laughs> in a lot of his films, I think yeah. he's creating, like, he he was a Shakespearean actor, so he made a lot of Shakespearean films, and then now, I guess he likes being Poirot, so he does <laughs> so now all he's of Poirot. those. Like, yeah, exactly. He's creating opportunities for himself as well, and this is, I guess, what he's interested in doing. His Hamlet is very solid. Um, I will say that. Like, that is yeah, that was my my Shakespeare of my youth, um, and I'm really thankful to him for that because it's a it's a pretty dark one and a, an accurate you know look at. Um, a play that had been completely kind of ruined by uh, Mel Gibson and various other <laughs> directors. True. I, I did like the Ethan Hawke one too. He's always so conscious of his performance. And even, it's hard to watch this with two. So it's interesting because we get a, a German sort of Russian accent in the Kenneth Branagh of the 1940s. Oh, no, no it, it's not a bracelet, darling. It, it's an anklet, a very special anklet. And then his very suspect American accent for the Kenneth Brown of the 90s. Maybe you're lucky. Lucky, how so? You know, I was just thinking there must be a certain kind of freedom that goes with living only in the present tense. At least you don't have to spend every day trying to forget your past. It's true of Emma Thompson, too. She's British with her own posh accent in the 1940s, and then she's doing an American accent for 1991. It's, um, and anyone coming to this film in 1991 knew who they were. They were remarkably they famous. They did not. That's just it. You in think America, so? they were not. No, no, no. I read this was article stuff. This is article stuff. So because I, <laughs> I made the assumption as well, was I was like, they're coming off this huge Oscar film. Nope. Uh, they were very, very well, well known in the UK. They were not as well known in the US. In fact, some smaller marquees actually build Andy Garcia and Robin Williams instead of them as the leads of this film. That's wild. I mean, they're great. Uh, Robin Williams in this is really interesting, like such an interesting yeah. role for him. Andy Garcia is pretty Andy Garcia. I like him a lot, but he's, you know, very Godfather part three in this. Um, he's doing Andy Garcia. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense then that it's a real gamble. I, what a fascinating, like, sophomoric film. This is one of the wildest, I think, for any director of the 90s. And that, and the Robin Williams piece ties it in with Hamlet since he comes back in uh, in his Hamlet. Oh, yeah. He he's, Os he's Osric, yeah. Yorick, yeah. Is he Osric or York? He's Osric. Okay. Um, right, because York's a skull. <laughs> uh, <laughs> York appears in flashback. He does, yeah. I can't remember who played that. <laughs> yes. But, um, you know, we've talked a lot about 90s films on this podcast, something like, you know, radio... Was it Radioland Murders? Um, yes. Yeah, it's such an obsession in the 90s with the 40s, the 30s and 40s, and sort of that era that America had lost during the Reagan years. It's it's fascinating to me that he would go here. And he goes, he really goes for it. It's not half-assing the 1940s. It's funny that he shot the black and white sequences originally in color. The screenplay was going to have them in black and white. They shot the whole film in color, and then test audiences had a lot of confusion around what time periods are being depicted. So he goes back and grades the color film to be black and white. Because I think you're right, Lindsay. It looks like Orson Welles' films, but in fact, that's just incidental because um, they're really pumping up the the darks and the shadows and the chiaroscuro. In terms of... Uh 
Enduring legacy, though, I want to make sure that we mention that this was executive produced by Lindsay Doran. And I'm such a producer. As people know, I love my producers because I think they're such un- unsung heroes and unsung villains of, of all cinema. And we don't really hear a lot of the stories. And Lindsay Doran is actually a name you should know because without her, this is the first relationship she has with Emma Thompson. This is where she meets Emma Thompson and says, you know what I think you could really do? I think you could adapt Sense and Sensibility. And this becomes a long working relationship with Emma Thompson. And then she proceeds to produce um, the McPhee, the Nanny McPhee movies, Stranger Than Fiction. I love them. They're really good. Yeah, if people really haven't fun. seen them, they're super fun, super charming. Uh, Stranger Than Fiction is one of my personal favorite movies, and that was produced by her. Uh, she's known to be a, um, a huge mentor for screenwriters. They call her the script whisperer. So Scott Frank, who wrote this and then would go on to write Minority Report and like a bunch of other huge films, he says, I learned everything I know about writing. He's like, I was an okay writer. And then I met her and she just, like you know, completely turned me upside down. And I am the writer I am because of her. And this is what she did. And I love, um, she's got a great TED Talk. If people want mm. to uh, listen to it, she talks about um, saving the world versus kissing the girl and why we actually love movies. And it's not about the um, saving the, the world moment. It's about the relationship that haf- happens after the saving the world moment. And that we always, uh, we always forget those. It's really interesting. Totally worth your time. What do you think um, Kenneth Branagh's TED talk would be like (laughs) (laughs) good question um i mean career longevity is what it would be but it would be it would be a very precise timeline of all of his accomplishments did he end up owning a monet i don't know i will have to look that up i'm sure there's some sort of records of that he must he wanted one sam goldman he stopped doing those stupid plays so you know he sold out for a minute wow (laughs) wouldn't we all wouldn't we all? Depends on which Binet. Um, But I love that her mandate for a great movie is three things. This is based on a classical thing. She says, number one, it must be arresting and amusing to the drunk. Number two, it must address the question, how should we live? And number three, it must address the question, how does the universe work? And I'm like... Zandily addresses all three of those in many ways. Yeah, but it's entered, as you're saying, it's being revisited to be a, a, a film that is worth watching and, and is interesting and compelling. And yeah, amusing to the drunk is definitely in there. Mm-hmm. But I think what that means, it just means it has to be easy to follow. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess. I don't know. I guess that's true. Uh, we have some very hard to follow films that have been very successful this year or last year. <laughs> um, but yeah, maybe that what she's talking about more is longevity rather than initial success. I think, I think so. what she's that's talking right. about is the ability to go and revisit a film 30 and 40 years later versus box office initial success, which can be very elusive and then very short-sighted. I think so, too. But I think it's one of those important things kind of look and go, OK, well, she mentored this. And then obviously you, you form these connections and and you get this whole great Emma Thompson legacy, including my favorite adaptation, Sense and Sensibility. So, I'm looking so up right that. now what K-Dog followed this up with. Peter's Friends. Peter's yes. Friends, I was going to no. say. that. Yeah. No, is it cool? I have. It's a comedy with like Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. Um, hmm. Like in Emma, Emma Thompson and some of like his his usuals, but in Emma Thompson's usuals, I guess, with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's like a nice like uh, friends coming back together after having like gone through university together and they're a bunch of like actors in university and then they go on to like do different things with their lives and come all back together. Isn't and it? They've had some tragedy in their lives and it's just relationshipy. Peter's father has died and he, Peter is Stephen Fry. So he like, gets his house which is like this big mansion and and so he invites everybody back to the house to like see each other and 
Right, right, right. Yeah, I got to review this. Yeah, it's uh, Rita Redner is one of the co-writers of it. Hmm. Yeah, she's a weird. I was thinking she was a weird one to be in it, but if she co-wrote it, then I guess that makes that sense. explains it. I remember and they yeah, they sing the, together. They've got a singing thing. It was released through HBO. It's a it's 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 an interesting. Uh, uh, but I mean, that would be an Altman kind of uh, swing, right? With yep. all those people coming together, multiple storylines. Again, he's like, "Well, I gotta hit out my Waltman, uh, my Altman. Like, gotta take <laughs> that off my list. Get that Altman out there. Like, it's very just looking at his filmography. I'm like." Holy moly, this is like a, a like a formula. Yeah, like a formula, <laughs> like a, a what's a scavenger hunt. <laughs> like, <I> mean, <laughs> totally. Well, and then casting people who in, in this film would have the widest appeal, like Andy Garcia would have been enormous mm-hmm. at this time. I know my mom was a huge fan. He was coming off of, um, yeah, well, I think he's he's in his thriller phase too, because like Jennifer Eight is around this time, and which I, very underrated thriller, if people aren't familiar with a great Uma Thurman, Thurman performance. And yeah, and even the Robin Williams thing. Robin Williams asked to be uncredited on this because he thought people would have the wrong idea of what this film actually was like. But he's going into his serious phase because this is the same year as Fisher King and Hook. Is Hook serious? I I would say so in terms of the way he's playing the performance. He's not doing all sorts of, because he's playing it straight laced for the first half and then he turns into Peter Pan in the second half, right? Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think of his like serious phase as more like, like really dark, dark. Robin Williams films. But yeah, I see what you're saying. I see. This is like one yeah, of the first. Fisher King, it, like I hadn't seen Fisher King in a long time and I rewatched it. I was like, holy shit, it's this devastating. Is so sad. Yeah, it's devastating. This is so sad. Yeah. Well, because you think of all the, the um, fantasy scenes in it, but you're like, oh no, this is horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize when we're we're looking at like the fanboy element of this is that he's casting Hannah Shigula in a uh, fairly prominent role. Again, we don't want to talk too much about the... The twist on this, because the twist is real good, um, but this was a muse, quote unquote, we now know as a collaborator of uh, of Rainer Fassbender, and um, she calls herself a survivor of Fassbender. Yeah, I mean, she's she is Maria Braun. Like, that's one of the most important yeah. films produced out of West Germany in the 70s. Um, I think she's the one that appears in the most Fassbender films out of all of his um, quote-unquote muses. I hate that term. And she was yeah, an auto-muse. She was not a muse at all because she was there from the beginning in the 60s uh, at the film school. But, you know, casting her, she's, you know, I think it's very obvious. We're not spoiling anything. She is the Mrs. Danvers if we're comparing this yeah. film to Rebecca. She's this very, um, very staunch formidable, threatening housekeeper that stands in the way of sort of the happiness of of the marriage in the 1940s. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's a real, that's just so K-Dog going like, who is one of the most established art house actresses in the world? Who's German. Yeah, (laughs) who can do an actual German accent, unlike (laughs) K-Dog. Of course, you can go for Hannah Shigula. And she, she pops up in a lot of films in the 90s. Because um, it's usually a tourist aspiring directors who want to um, hitch their wagon to her and establish their yeah. street cred. <laughs> yeah, she's always good in everything she does. Um, she does appear in old age makeup in this, and it's um, I think one of the only things I'd criticize the film on is it looks ridiculous, like utterly ridiculous. But she knows what she's doing in this movie. She knows what movie she's in, and she knows what movies this film is referencing in terms of the 1940s. I think that's the perfect place for us to end. So once again, I think we all recommend checking out uh, Dead Again because it is totally worth it. The twist is great. It turns into a horror movie at the end, which is also very fun. Uh, If you want to see... 
uh, one of our favorite actors go completely off the rails, this is a great one for you. So I want to thank Alicia Fletcher for joining us once again. Thank you. And I just want to advocate once more for Zandali. Um, <laughs> give it a shot, but go in, go in with an open mind. and um, Watch it with some buddies and perhaps some substances. Some, some beignets and some substances, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lindsay Gibb, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. And I'm sorry that Zandali isn't one of my favorites. That's okay. I don't <laughs> expect I do very that. I appreciate Kate. I don't it. expect that of everyone. It's a very, um, but if you ever need archival material, I've been slowly amassing the Zandali archive of international lobby cards, posters, and anything that was produced. <laughs> Stuff that Sam Pillsbury apparently it. doesn't have, which I was like, oh. <laughs> now, with that having been said, you literally wrote a Nicolas Cage book. What are mm-hmm. some of his, uh, his lesser known things that you would recommend people check out? I mean, I don't think Vampire's Kiss is as lesser known as it once was, like when I started writing this book in like 2013. So, yeah. um, but I always recommend that. I think that Joe is a film Agreed. that not a lot of people watched and that was Beautiful really great film. and so good. Now, Lindsay, can you tell people how they can find your book and find more of your work? Sure. So the book's called National Treasure Nicholas Cage. It's through ECW Press, so you could buy it directly from them. But I'm sure it's out there on, you know, the usual places you buy books. Um, and I'm also, I have a podcast about Winona Ryder. So that's also another thing. Noted uh, for future Winona episodes. Forever. Winona <laughs> forever. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's actually Wino forever now. It's been altered. Sorry. <laughs> And you can join us again in two weeks where, you know, let's have some laughs. We're looking at hot shots and pure luck. And we're going to be joined by the absolutely hilarious P.D. Gibson. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Alicia Fletcher and Lindsay Gibb as our guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.